Good morning. This 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh God, thank you that you speak to us. Would you make yourself known to us, God? God, as we now pay attention to your word, we pray that you would uh, pay attention to us, that, um, that you would reveal yourself to us in a way that um, both confronts the untruth in our hearts and minds. Uh, that gently corrects us. Would you call us to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the um, uh, most interesting books I've read recently, and I think I've, I've referenced this uh, before, uh, is a book called Dominion by Tom Holland. Uh, really thick, fat book. It's the sort of book, it's good to reference because it looks impressive that you've read a 500-plus page book. But... Um, Tom Holland, the author, is, uh, he's British, and he, he, he says in the introduction that he grew up in England. His mom took him to church every Sunday, but um, one Sunday when he was about 12 years old, he opened a children's Bible at church, and there was a picture of Adam and Eve next to a dinosaur, and he thought something is wrong here, and, um, and that began begun this kind of unraveling of his, of his childhood faith. And uh, he, he rejected all of it, became an agnostic. And um, 
as, a, as, a, as an adult, he becomes an author and a historian, and he studies the ancient world, and he said he was fascinated by the world of the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Assyrians and the Romans and their gods, Apollo and Athena and Dionysius. But eventually, he found himself struggling with the world that he wrote about. The Spartans, he discovered, were heroes. They were cruel. They exposed their infants. They destroyed the weak. Julius Caesar conquered Gaul, killing a million people and enslaving another million. And Tom Holland writes this, he says, it was not just the extremes of callousness that unsettled me, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Why did I find this world disturbing? See what he's saying? I'm finding what I'm writing about in history disturbing, but why is it so unsettling? And so he began to question why he reacted so strongly against this world, and he he found that all of the things that he valued about the world are the fruit of Christianity. He didn't believe in Christianity. (laughs) But he was absolutely convinced that his view of the world was right. Um, Not just preferable, not just better than alternatives, but it was good and right, and so he began to research the origins and impact of Christianity, resulting in this book that he wrote called Dominion. And he discovered something remarkable as he began to research the origins and impact of Christianity. He discovered um, that the Roman Empire crucified thousands of people, but that there was almost no record of Crucifixion. There's almost no surviving uh, record, written record of crucifixion from the ancient world. Uh, crucifixion was a shameful um, practice, a shameful way to die. He says this: No death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest. Helpless to beat away the clamorous birds, such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. This, in turn, was what rendered it so suitable a punishment for slaves. Lacking such a sanction, the entire order of the city might fall apart. The luxurious lifestyle of the Roman Empire was predicated on drawing slaves with their strange customs and practices from the far corners of the earth. The threat of crucifixion was the thing that kept the slaves from rebelling. So gruesome, however, was the practice of crucifixion that Roman society avoided discussing it entirely. The surprise, Tom Holland writes, then is less that we should have so few detailed descriptions in ancient literature of what a crucifixion might actually involve than that we should have any at all. Nevertheless, amid the general silence, there is one major exception which proves the rule. Four detailed accounts of the process by which a man might be sentenced to the cross and then suffer his punishment have survived from antiquity. (laughs) Remarkably, they all describe the same execution, a crucifixion that took place outside the walls of Jerusalem. The victim, a Jew named Jesus, was a wandering preacher from an obscure town named Nazareth. 
He had been convicted of a capital offense against Roman order. There is no reason to doubt the essentials of this narrative. Even the most skeptical historians accept them. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, and grotesque. Essentially, here's his thesis, that capital punishment by means of the cross was so horrendous that the people who invented it and whose way of life in some way depended on it almost exclusively refused to speak of it. When someone was crucified, you never heard of them again. You know, name two people who were ever crucified. You can get to one pretty quickly. The second one is going to be really hard to think of. Their names were blotted out, never to remember it again. This happened thousands and thousands of times, with one glaring exception. Jesus was crucified by the Romans, but his name didn't fade into oblivion. Far from it. He so thoroughly transformed the world, especially Western culture, that even those who don't believe in him have been shaped by his death. Even those who today find Christianity to be immoral take Jesus' crucifixion for granted when arguing for things like unconditional love or protecting the least of these or fighting to uphold justice. And so Tom Holland, who's still an agnostic, is, is, is warning that Western culture is in the middle of a dangerous and unprecedented experiment in which we're trying to carry out the values that are the fruit of Christianity while rejecting the foundation upon which they are based. And that's what you call a conundrum. <laughs> and at the center of this conundrum lies the cross. The cross, an instrument of torture and execution, which is the most visible symbol of love in our world. And I think this conundrum is at the heart of what I'm really wanting to bring before us in this new series, The Scandal of the Cross, as we approach Easter. Uh, the cross of Jesus stands at the center of human history. Everybody today knows that Jesus died on a cross, and yet most of us have no real idea why. But the reality of the cross and resurrection undergirds Western culture so thoroughly that to eradicate the cross would undermine our system of justice, would frustrate our medical uh, industry, and erode our institutions of learning. And in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, he's speaking to this church. Now, this probably won't sound familiar to us at all, but he's talking to this church that is divided against itself, where there are factions, where people um, can't get along with one another. That doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? And what he does is he writes to this church, he, he, he tells them that the cross is foolishness. And he says that the power of the cross is demonstrated in its folly. In a time where Christianity feels increasingly impotent, many Christians today, much like the ancient Corinthians, uh, want to make their faith palatable. But if we believe Paul, the secret to receiving the power of the cross lies in its scandal. Seeing its foolishness, Christianity that bears fruit in this world has at its essence the foolishness of the cross. That's what this passage is showing us. So two things that I want to highlight for us in this passage. And the first is this, that um, what Paul is speaking against 
And what I think we deeply actually want is a Christianity that avoids embarrassment. We see this especially in verses 18 and 22. Uh, Verse 18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross, which stands at the center of Christianity, Paul says, is foolishness. It's embarrassing. I don't like to feel embarrassed. (laughs) I don't like to look foolish. I remember um, the first time um, going to London. Ashley and I um, went to grad school in Scotland and took the train down um, the first Christmas that we lived there to London. And um, if you've ever been to London, one of the strange things about London is that you kind of feel like a prairie dog where you take the, like, uh, under the subway, the, the, the tube around, and then you like pop your head up and look around. And, um, <laughs> and, and it's really hard to ever know where you are. And this was before smartphones. And I remember getting off the underground and taking the escalator up to the street. And we were looking for our hotel. And I came out and there was this English gentleman with an overcoat and a top hat. And I asked him for directions. And he very patronizingly sort of said like, well, all you have to do, sir, is walk down the street and turn right, and it's right there. And I, and I said, thanks, I'm not from around here. You know, if, I don't want to look foolish, so I, I have to make it clear. The reason I need help here is because I'm not from around here. It's understandable. I don't want to look foolish. Um, I don't want to look foolish. Paul says that the cross will always look foolish to those who do not believe in Jesus. One of the... Um, you know, occupational hazards that I have as a pastor is like every time we move, I got to find somewhere to get my hair cut again. <laughs> and I, so I've moved, you know, to San Luis Obispo this summer and I find somewhere to go get my hair cut and I sit down and I know I'm going to sit there and three minutes in, you know, the, the question inevitably is going to come. So what do you do for a living? Oh, well, I'm a pastor. Oh, why, why do you want to do that? <laughs> um, wh- what's happening there? Uh, you're one of those. You, know, you believe in a God that created the universe. Don't you believe in science? You seem like a smart person. You believe in a virgin birth. Don't you understand that that's impossible? You believe that God became a man to pay for your sins. Don't you understand that that is primitive? I don't want to look foolish. Um, You know, in that moment, what do you do? I'm a pastor. I thought you were smart, you know. Uh, Don't you have, like, degrees? I don't want to look foolish. We don't want to look foolish, right? And so what we do is we try to make Christianity look smart. And we try to make Christianity look useful or powerful. We want to put our best foot forward. So we say things to people like, if you trust in Jesus, it will make your life better. He will fill your life with meaning. He will forgive you of your sins. You will live life with, uh, live with him forever. He will give you the strength to get through anything life throws at you. He will bless you. Jesus will make your life wonderful. And all of that is true. All of that's true. Christianity will make your life better, but it will make your life better because it's true. It's not true because it makes your life better. And so we have to embrace Christianity because it's true, not because it's useful, not because it works. 
And when we talk about Christianity primarily in terms of its functionality, we're trying to avoid embarrassment. We're trying to say, look, this isn't silly to believe in. It works. It's powerful. I'm not a fool for believing in Jesus. And in so doing, we're recasting the almighty God of the universe as our assistant. And we're emptying the cross of its power, all because we don't want to look foolish. And the Corinthian Christians were just doing, were doing exactly the same thing. That's what's happening here. Uh, they wanted to look powerful. They wanted to look sophisticated. They wanted to avoid embarrassment. And Paul says that they had two strategies for a Christianity that avoids embarrassment. And we see it in verse 22. Uh, the two strategies are um, wisdom and power. Wisdom and power. Signs and wisdom. He says in verse 22. Um, so what does that mean? Why were they looking for signs and wisdom? Well, there were um, first, you know, if we think about the signs first, there were Jews in Corinth. Um, as the Jews, beginning with the exile of Babylon, had been scattered throughout what was then, what, what eventually became the Roman Empire. Um, so there's Jewish Christians in the church here. And what the Jewish Christians wanted were extraordinary signs that would validate their faith. And this is part of the reason that the church in Corinth, as you, you know, read the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, like this church is a mess. And part of the reason that the church is a mess is because the Jewish Christians there were obsessed with uh, signs, and they were, so they were obsessed with tongues and prophecy and healing and miracles. And yes, God works in extraordinary ways, but we can't be bothered to wait around for him to show up. And so we're going to manufacture signs um, so that we can feel validated in our faith. We need signs every week, every Sunday. And in some ways, the temptation for the Jewish Christians in Corinth is the temptation that religious people everywhere face. When you know you're right, and when you know that you have God on your side in a world that doesn't believe in him and thinks that you're foolish for following him, you want, to per, you want him to produce miraculous signs. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees were asking Jesus for all the time. If you are the Messiah, give us a sign. And Jesus says, the sign that you're going to receive is the sign of the prophet Jonah. So what Jesus is saying is you're looking for a sign, something impressive, and the only sign you're going to get is that I'm going to disappear. <laughs> Ironic. I'm going to go away. And really this, is, this desire for a sign is a desire that God would remove uncertainty. Uh, what it reveals about us is that we want a God who will do what we want him to do. We want a God who is like a cosmic vending machine. A God who will on demand give us what we need. We want a God who is powerful and because he is powerful, he makes us look impressive. This is the, the, the tendency of religious people everywhere, and I think we have to acknowledge that this is the temptation of, for evangelical churches and Christians today. It's the tendency to believe that we have God figured out, and we're the ones who understand him, so we're going to speak for him, and we're going to tell you what's wrong with the way that you're doing things, and we're going to like package God up and offer him to people in a neat little bento box. <laughs> and that's the world that we live in. So that's what the signs are all about. But then there's this other way to avoid the embarrassments of Christianity, and it's in wisdom. 
And this was the temptation for the Greeks in Corinth. And in our time, I think that this is the temptation for um, mainline churches and for those of us who lean towards the progressive or left side of the cultural political spectrum. Is the temptation, uh, the temptation for, towards wisdom here is the temptation to have a God that we keep at a distance. When we think of the Greeks, um, you know, we think of the Greek gods, the, the pantheon of gods. Uh, but by this time, nobody actually believed in the Greek gods. The Greeks thought of themselves at this point as very sophisticated and very intellectual. And so you think of like the Greek philosophers, right? Um, and so many in Corinth were, were of this ilk. They were sophisticated. They were wealthy. They were intellectuals. They understood ideas. They understood how the world worked. They were in their own way very scientific uh, they understood logic and lived in the world of ideas, and they knew that the gods didn't really do anything, and so they wanted a god who would fit into their way of life. They wanted a god who would remain at a safe distance, a god that they could talk about and discuss and theorize about. Not a god who comes into your life and rearranges everything. They wanted a god who... Um, you know, reforms the problems of the world, but doesn't actually demand anything from us. They didn't want a God who asks for your allegiance and reprioritizes the way that you spend your time and your money. They wanted a God who, who doesn't demand anything of you and would never, ever make you look or feel foolish. That's the sort of God that the Corinthians wanted. And that's the sort of God that we want, but the thing about Christianity is it doesn't offer us the God that we want, it offers us the God who actually exists. And we have a very difficult task here, I think, getting our heads around this because of the point in history at which we live. Paul is reminding Christians in the first century that the way of the cross is foolishness to the world, and the earliest Christians uh, came from all stratas of society. There were upper class, lower class. Uh, well, I mean, there wasn't really a middle class um, in the ancient world, but um, they, they came from all backgrounds, all languages, all tribes. But they came to embrace Christianity knowing that when they did so, they would look foolish in the eyes of their neighbors. The earliest Christians understood that the cross is inherently foolish. But all of that changed about 400 years after uh, Paul wrote this letter because the emperor Constantine uh, becomes a Christian at that point and all of a sudden uh, Christianity doesn't look so foolish anymore. In fact, it changes completely to the, the other side of the spectrum where to be um, a person of any influence or prominence for about 1,500 years in the Western world meant that you had to at least speak like a Christian. And so even those who weren't Christians still had respect for Christianity. And this is strange for us today because we have inherited that world, but now we're living in a time where the cross is looking foolish again. And so Christians today in this strange place, I think, have the tendency to try to make Christianity look powerful and sophisticated. That's why evangelical Christianity grasps, grasps after power, and that's why mainline Christianity tries to rebrand Christianity to look like the moral cause of the day. And the thing about it is that these approaches convince absolutely nobody. They convince nobody. Our attempts to make Jesus and his cross look like wisdom and power robs the cross of its power. And our children 
and younger generations look at evangelicalism and say things like, why would people who follow a crucified savior be so quick to defend their rights and protect their own comfort? Or on the other hand, why would I bother going to church and giving my money and time towards a Christianity that just affirms what everybody says on the news, usually after the fact? doesn't actually change lives. And so we're living in a time where Christianity feels impotent. And the things that we're doing to try to rehabilitate Christianity are the things that Paul says actually rob the cross of its power. The second thing, though, in this passage is that Paul says the folly of God outsmarts the wisdom of human beings. The the cross appears foolish, Paul doesn't say that the cross is foolish. He doesn't say the cross is weak. He says the cross appears foolish. The cross appears weak, but in actuality, the cross is divine strength and divine wisdom. When properly understood, the cross sucks the life out of human power and human wisdom, and it shines the spotlight of God's glory on Jesus, who we see as wiser and more powerful than we could have ever imagined. The cross is like the ultimate judo move, where judo uses the uh, enemy's momentum against him. That's what the cross is doing. So how does that work? Well, think about human wisdom. What does that look like? You know, you might, if you think about, like, what is the, the, uh, the image of human wisdom? You maybe think of, like, that picture of Einstein where his crazy hair, and, you know, that's what, that's what intelligence and sophistication looks like. Or you might think of, um, I don't know, like the Bodleian Library in Oxford, or, or you might think of Harvard and Yale, or, or you might think of, um, you know, Silicon Valley, where the brightest minds of our day get paid massive amounts of money to invent new technologies that will think on our behalf. You think of like, uh, I don't know, the Google Skunk Works, where they just throw money at people and say, try to figure out something amazing. Um, or like Elon Musk, who is trying to save the planet um, by giving us things that are beautiful and awesome. <laughs> right? That's what wisdom might look like, or, or what does power look like? You know, you think about maybe a picture of a hurricane from above that is just this unbelievably powerful storm, or, or, a pic, or like the mushroom cloud of an atomic bomb, incredibly powerful. You might think of Marvel movies, or the ocean's tides, uh, you know, the waves. We went down to Morro Bay two months ago and watched these 25 foot plus waves just breaking and like moving rocks. It's crazy. You might think about athletes like Tom Brady or Simone Biles or Usain Bolt or Mike Trout or Steph Curry or Lionel Messi, all in their ways, remarkable specimens of power, human power. Human power and human wisdom in these forms, the, the, the way that we think of them, they are overt, they are raw, and they are zero-sum games. You know, when Tom Brady is winning, somebody else is losing, right? When another book is published and added to the library of human knowledge, somebody else is already writing the follow-up or improving upon it. And so here's the question, and I think in some ways, this, understanding this dynamic 
uh, the foolishness of the cross hangs on this. Here's the question. When God moves in power and wisdom towards humanity, how will he do that without moving against us? If, if, if wisdom and power are zero-sum games, how can God move towards us in wisdom and power without moving against us? You, know, you think about the force of a hurricane. God spoke, and everything came into existence. That's raw power. Or you think about the sophistication of language and words and philosophy. Well, John 1 says that Jesus is the Word. He is the Word. John 14 says he is the truth. If he moves towards us in ways that we recognize as human power and wisdom, he would vanquish us. In our finitude, we are frail. In our sinfulness, he is perfection and holiness. Micah 3.2 says, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And so God in his wisdom comes to us in what looks foolish. God comes to us, his strength veiled in flesh, hidden in weakness. God comes to us not going toe-to-toe with human strength, which would obliterate us. He comes to us not going toe-to-toe with human wisdom, with which he would humiliate us. He comes to us rather confounding human power and wisdom, which at best are frail and fleeting, and which in practice and in brokenness are often instruments of corruption and abuse and judgment. And he draws the forces of wisdom and power onto himself, swallowing them whole and taking them to the grave. It's amazing. It takes great strength to sit by and do nothing in the face of incompetence. It takes great wisdom to help the foolish learn And that's what is happening on the cross as Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, hangs on the cross, suffering naked and helpless. All the Gospels point out that um, Jesus hung on the cross, and as he did, he was powerless and mocked by others. He looks foolish. Matthew 27 says, Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, why can't you save yourself? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. If he is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God now deliver him if he desires, because he said, I am the Son of God. Hear that on the cross, people are saying, Give us a sign, Jesus. Save yourself. Show us your power. Show us your wisdom. And he could have done all of those things. He could have saved himself and left human wisdom to fall on us. He could have saved himself and left human power to fall on us. But instead, he takes the curse. He endures the shame. He draws the human power and wisdom onto himself. On the cross, he turns the world upside down, emptying human power and wisdom of their sting. That's fantastic. That's amazing. Uh, and it does two things. Uh, the, the impact of, there, there, there's two impacts of the cross. There's an objective reality and there is a subjective experience. 
And um, the, the first is this. The, the objective reality looks like this. The only hope that we have for the payment of our sins is that Jesus took the punishment of God upon himself for us. On the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for our sins, reconciling us to God, and therefore there is no power in any accusation that comes against those who are in Christ. And that is a matter of historical objectivity. It happened whether we believe it or respond to it or not. But then there's also a subjective experience that comes as a result of the cross. The subjective experience means this, that the cross is good news for the humble. Verse 26, Paul says this. <laughs> it's funny, he's just said, the cross is, looks like wisdom, or looks like foolishness and weakness. And he says, consider your calling, brothers, and not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Then in verse 29, he says, the effect of this, why does God operate in this way? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The cross is good news for the humble. The only thing that keeps us from the cross is our pride. That's what Paul is saying. The only thing that would prevent somebody from looking at the cross of Christ and saying, this is foolishness and I reject it, is our own pride. And our pride is the thing that makes the message of the cross incredulous to our world. Maybe you're here this morning and the cross has never really made sense to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, the, the Christians talk about the majesty of the cross and I don't get it because it looks so stupid. It looks foolish and you've seen Christians trying so hard to make it look smart and sophisticated and it just doesn't line up and you know what, you're right. I want to ask you to look again at the cross. It's through the foolishness of the cross that God drains worldly power of its ability to abuse and accuse and maybe this morning you can hear the voice of God calling you to the cross. Will you come to him? Will you follow Jesus? Will you repent of your sin and trust in his wisdom and power? The only thing that keeps us from the cross is our pride. But God gives grace to the humble. To those who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. Maybe today is the day that you respond to the cross. But for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, I want to say this again. The only thing that keeps us from the cross is our pride, and our pride is the thing that makes the message of the cross look incredulous to the world. Our pride is the thing that makes the cross look incredulous to our children, to younger generations that look at Christians trying to make Christianity look smart and sophisticated, and they're like, something doesn't line up here. It's our pride that is standing in the way. Those who follow Jesus are called to follow him in the way of the cross, and we're not fooling anyone or really defending the cross by relying on our own strength. What the cross offers is not a, um, you know, like a life hack the cross is not a way to make your life better. What the cross gives you is life itself. The fullness that Jesus has to offer in his own life is given to you on the cross. He's not giving us competence. He's given us the actual wisdom of God. 
What we need is not self-righteousness based on our weak record of obedience and goodness, but the righteous record of the perfect one who is able to make us holy and rescue us from the treadmill of performance and bring us into the freedom of his way of life. That's what's happening on the cross. And when we see who Jesus is and all that he is um, for us, Paul's saying that boasting just vanishes. It goes out the door. It just disappears. And real life that seeks the good of others and the glory of God is actually opened to us. It would be um, really foolish to look and say the cross is the foolish, looks like foolishness and expect that we could follow in the way of Christ and not also look like fools ourselves. If we would see the cross powerfully transforming lives, you know, and I think especially as we, as we have just finished this sermon series, looking, about, looking at the generations and, and, and thinking about how um, Gen Z and Gen Alpha you know, the, the youngest generations alive are living with anxiety unlike anything known by older generations. If we would see the gospel of Jesus powerfully healing this generation of students and our kids, that they would find forgiveness in Christ, it will happen as we embrace the way of the cross and abandon attempts to make the cross an instrument of our upward mobility. If the cross looks like weakness and foolishness, we cannot point to the cross or live in light of the cross without a willingness to look weak and foolish ourselves. So let me just finish with a, a quote from Frederick Buchner. Um, he writes this in a book called The Faces of Jesus. He says, if the world is sane, then Jesus is mad as a hatter and the Last Supper is the mad tea party. The world says, mind your own business, and Jesus says, there is no such thing as your own business. The world says, follow the wisest course and be a success, and Jesus says, follow me and be crucified. The world says, drive carefully, the life you save may be your own, and Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says law and order, and Jesus says love. The world says get, and Jesus says give. In terms of the world's sanity, Jesus is as crazy as a hoot. <laughs> and anybody who thinks we can follow him without being a little crazy ourselves is, laboring, is not laboring under a cross, but a delusion. If the cross looks like foolishness and weakness to our world, then those of us who follow Jesus have to be willing to look weak and foolish. The word of the cross, Paul says, is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we thank you that in your wisdom, you did not come besting human power you didn't come challenging human wisdom because that would have been no challenge at all. But you come rather to woo us by um, emptying our attempts at uh, self-improvement, our search for life hacks, our um, desire for things to be just a little bit better, and you just empty those of all their power and draw us to yourself. So Jesus, we thank you for 
living a perfect life on our behalf. We thank you for going to the cross, enduring its shame in order to reconcile us to yourself. And I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to respond uh, today, this week, the rest of our lives with faith that we would um, not seek to rebrand Christianity as something that, you know, is really just a good idea. But we would, um, we would have the privilege of being just uh, a few more people in this long tradition following the way of the cross, which is what gives life um, to the world around us. We can look um, at the many places where the message of the cross has um, led to establishing hospitals and schools and um, human rights, the eradication of slavery. Would you give us the privilege of bearing witness to the cross in our time and place? We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.